One night, shortly before or after October 4th, 1980, Stephen Lynn Scott awoke, drenched in a cold sweat. He had just had a vivid nightmare. It had been like a movie. Sitting up, trying to catch his breath, he reviewed the details. A man with blonde hair, who stood about five foot seven, was talking to a black woman. The man wore a short-sleeved t-shirt and was heavy-set. Suddenly, the man's entire demeanor changed. He picked up an object and began attacking the woman. She didn't resist. That wasn't the worst part of it. The man started smashing her apart. There was blood flying everywhere. But she just allowed it to happen. After the violent act was complete, the room was covered in blood. He chalked the nightmare up to his lifestyle. At the time... Stephen worked as a supervisor for a mission in Christian Halfway House for ex-cons. Things could get tense, to say the least. The neighborhood was riddled with drugs and violence. It didn't surprise him this atmosphere would lead to nightmares. With that explanation in his mind, he resigned himself to sleep. But things were about to change. A few days before or after his dream, Stephen can't remember which, A real-life nightmare was playing out a few miles away. Around the same time of his nightmare, October 4th, 1980 to be exact, Karen Ann Phillips, a 24-year-old nursing student, was sexually assaulted and beaten to death in her apartment. She had been bludgeoned to death. Karen was training to be a swami at Temple Kriya Yoga. She also attended Good News Mission, the same mission where Stephen Lynn Scott worked as a supervisor. After finding out about Karen Ann Phillips' death, Stephen found he couldn't shake his nightmare. He asked himself if this was God reaching out to him, if it was an inspired experience. He then spent some time mulling the information around in his mind. Stephen then reached out to his wife Lois and some students at the Bible College. They responded well to the idea of reaching out to law enforcement to help grasp Stephen's character I think it's important to know some of his history. Stephen Lynn Scott is the son of an air traffic controller. He graduated from Holton High School in 1972. Eventually, Stephen joined the Navy as a radio man, where he received top-secret clearance. To those around him, Stephen was a soft-spoken and good-natured individual with a good head on his shoulders. Stephen never had any run-ins with the law, The worst that happened was a speeding ticket. His progress in the Navy showed that he had gained the trust of those who employed him. On October 6, 1980, Stephen contacted the Oak Park Police Department by way of telephone and informed them of his vivid dream. He was asked to come in, and when he arrived, he was read as Miranda writes. He was assured that this was standard procedure, that there was recently a man they had in whose house had been burglarized and they had read him his Miranda rights as well. 
The investigators explained to Stephen that he was their best shot at solving the case. They had told him that maybe he had psychic powers. This bolstered Stephen's willingness to help. Two long interviews were held, in which detectives led the direction of the interrogation. They would pressure Stephen further when they were getting what they wanted, and back off if the interview was going in a direction that didn't help their case. Often, the detectives would ask for Stephen to take a guess if he didn't know the answer. That, even if it seemed silly, to just give it a shot. Lois, Stephen's wife, began to worry. She didn't like the line of questioning the detectives were taking. When detectives were pressured about whether they felt Stephen was under suspicion, they casually explained that they had to leave no doubt that he wasn't a suspect before they could use him as a witness. Again, Lois didn't like the explanation. She understood it was in Stephen's nature to trust others. At the time, it seemed that he only had the ability to see the good in others. Investigators had no leads in the case before Stephen Lynn Scott contacted them. Only there to recount his dream, Lynn Scott willingly submitted blood, saliva, and hair samples. He also wrote a seven-paragraph statement, likely guided by the long, detective-guided interviews he had been subjected to. The night of the murder... Stephen was laying beside Lois in bed. She was able to confirm this because she had woken up sometime during the night to feed their nine-month-old son. Regardless, on November 25, 1980, Stephen Lynn Scott is charged with first-degree murder. The evidence was circumstantial at best. The fingerprints found on the scene were not a match. The semen and hair samples could be a match, but they also matched a large portion of men in the city. There were differences between the dream and murder. Stephen's dream killer was blonde. The real victim was Caucasian. The injuries sustained between real and dream victim were not a match. The object from Stephen's dream was a counterweight from a grandfather clock. The real murder weapon was a tire iron. As if the case couldn't get any more flimsier, the prosecution couldn't establish a motive. They told the jury they would be left to decide the motive. Investigators felt that the victim being found with her hands in a Hindu position was indicative of a passive acceptance of death. They felt like this was Stephen's dream victim accepting her fate. With so little hard evidence, and the circumstantial evidence being flimsy, you can easily see why the police, or the prosecutor, or even the jury would have seen that this trustworthy former Navy man had nothing to do with the crime. But, on June 16, 1982, Stephen was found not guilty of rape, but guilty of murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison. In prison, Stephen was allowed one weekly visit with his wife and three children. Lois was left to raise the three children on her own and had to explain to them why their father was in jail. I do wonder, how many times do you think Stephen, laying in his cot at night, asked himself if he was in a nightmare? That maybe he didn't wake from his dream after all. That the bludgeoning was just the start and he had found himself in his own version of Franz Kafka's The Trial. On November 1st, 1985, Stephen Lynn Scott was released from jail. He had spent 1,802 days in prison. Earlier, in August, the conviction had been reversed due to false statements from the prosecution. The prosecution had planned to appeal, but the reversal was upheld by the Illinois Supreme Court. On January 31st, 1991, a retrial was planned, but a little over a year later, the charges were dropped 
after DNA testing of the semen samples exonerated Stephen Lynn Scott of rape. The state's attorney felt there wasn't sufficient evidence to build a case. Finally, on December 19, 2002, Stephen Lynn Scott was pardoned and compensated for his wrongful conviction. Stephen published a book in 1994 called Maximum Security that covered his Kafka-esque journey. It would have been a small comfort compared to what he went through, but I hope it sold well. Looking over his social media account as of now, he seems to be living a happy life. Part of me has to wonder if, at some point, he woke up to an especially violent and imaginative dream. Would he tell anyone? Part 2. The Mad Gasser of Mattoon 1993 was a low point for the United States. It was the year the Great Depression peaked at 25% unemployment. For those not aware of, or don't fully understand the Great Depression, a short summary is that the rapid expansion of the stock market couldn't be sustained. And, on October 24, 1929, the market crashed. This was known as Black Thursday. Many young children were orphaned. 250,000 physically capable older children left their homes to find work. 1993 marked the year that the 25th Amendment was passed, repealing the prohibition of alcohol in the United States. The government could once again tax alcohol. This was an attempt to combat the effects of the Great Depression. To make matters worse, farmers were still reeling from the Dust Bowl. Over 6,000 shanty towns were created to contain the homeless created from unemployment lost in the farming trade. But, for some, the tail end of 1933 marked the birth of a terrifying figure. A figure that hid in the shadows, attacking victims with an invisible weapon. This figure made the news and caused mass panic. Some believe that this figure was the cause of mass hysteria. Others feel that there is too much evidence to dismiss his or her existence. This is the story of the mad gasser of Mattoon, who, at least in legend, used the effects of sleep to his advantage. December 22, 1933, Haymaker Town, Virginia. Mr. and Mrs. Huffman were spending a quiet evening together in their home. At around 10 p.m., Mrs. Huffman noticed a strange smell in the house. She complained of feeling drowsy and told her husband she was going to try to sleep it off. Mr. Huffman chose to stay awake and alert. Thirty minutes later, the smell became stronger, and they immediately evacuated the home. At his landlord's home, he called the police and reported the incident. A policeman was dispatched to the Huffman's home, and he watched over the premise until midnight. After he left the Huffman home, it was once again filled with gas. Mr. and Mrs. Huffman had been keeping watch and saw a figure running away from their home. Eight members of the family felt the effects of the gas. All were stricken with headaches. All were nauseated and felt a stinging in their throats. The teenage Alice Huffman became so ill, she began to convulse and, at one point, needed to be revived by artificial respiration. December 24th, 1933. Cloverdale, Virginia. Cloverdale shared the same county as Haymaker Town. Two days later, Clarence Hall and his family had spent their evening in church. When he, his wife, and their children arrived home, they noticed a strange, artificial smell. Clarence told his wife and children to wait outside and began a home inspection. As he began to search the home, 
He began to feel nauseated, dizzy even. His legs began to quiver, and he felt a weakness in his joints. By the time he finally stumbled back through the front door, his eyes were beginning to blur. His vision would be affected for days. By the time the local police arrived, the gas had mostly faded. A Dr. Breckenride had come with the police and noted that what remained of the gas left a sweet taste, similar to formaldehyde. It was noted that a nail had been pulled from a window in the Hall family home. Clarence and some locals spent some time that night searching the woods for the attacker. His neighbor, Emmett Lee, who had stayed home, heard a strange sounding voice or voices from outside his window. He grabbed his shotgun, ran outside, and fired into the sky as a warning. Emmett wanted whoever was out there to know that he wouldn't think twice about firing on them. He and his family spent the night upstairs. December 27th, Troutville, Virginia. A welder and his mother were gassed in their home. They felt the ill effects, but they survived. A 1933 Chevrolet, which would have been nearly brand new at the time, was seen driving back and forth in front of the victim's residence. In the car was a man and a woman. Remember that fact. A man and a woman. This will come up again. This was when our subject is given his or her first nickname. The Anesthetic Prowler. January 10th, 1934. Fincastle, Virginia. Maybe it was because of the scrutiny from the press and public, but nearly two weeks went by without another gas attack. Then, one night... Homer Hilton lay sleeping in bed with his wife in an upstairs bedroom. Downstairs, their daughter, Mrs. Moore, slept. Mrs. Moore's husband was gone on business, so she was left to tend for their child alone. At 10 p.m., Mrs. Moore woke to the sound of her crying baby. After going to soothe the child, she heard a strange, muffled voice outside her window. Suddenly, her window began to slide open. Mrs. Moore stood frozen in fear. The room filled with gas. She grabbed her baby and ran out of the room. As she escaped, she noticed that she felt numb from the gas. The next-door neighbors confirmed hearing voices at the same time Mrs. Moore had. January 19, 1934. Cloverdale, Virginia. The anesthetic prowler attacks again. Mrs. Campbell, the wife of a judge, walks to her window and sees something move in the shadows. She becomes ill. The gas had been sprayed through her window in question. On January 21st, Howard Crawford and his wife are gassed in their home on the Cloverdale-Troutsville line. On January 22nd, there were three gassing victims in Carvin's Cove. Ed Reedy was left feeling nauseated and numb. Raymond Edder took aim at his gas-wielding assailant but missed every shot. George C. Riley was the final victim of the night. He again was left feeling nauseated and numb. Local police attempted to capture the anesthetic prowler, putting up roadblocks and staying on a constant patrol. Their efforts didn't pay off. On January 23rd, R.H. Hartzell and her family had spent the night with some friends. At 4.30, they returned home to their front doors barricaded with wood. After removing the barricade... They found the home filled with gas. November 8th, 1935, Lake County, Florida. Separated from the Virginia attacks, and years later, there is a story printed in the Lake County newspaper 
that may hurt the theory that the mad gasser was just a case of mass hysteria. The article reports that there was a wandering bandit, armed with a gas-filled spray gun, that put his victims to sleep. Police in Lakeland County were initially baffled how a burglar could ransack a home while the family slept. Drawers would be pulled out of their cabinets. Furniture was dragged across the floor. It was finally discovered that the burglar was using a gas to keep the family asleep, while he or she took whatever items they chose without being disturbed. By 1944, the Great Depression was over. World War II was underway, and it was the year of the infamous D-Day invasion. It had been nine years since a reported gas attack. That was about to change. August 31st, 1994, Mattoon, Illinois. Early in the morning, Urban Reef crawled out of his bed, overcome with nausea. He was trembling. His body was weak. The feeling became overwhelming, and Urban began to vomit profusely. Urban's wife, worried there was a gas leak, attempted to get up and check, but found herself temporarily paralyzed, unable to move. Urban checked for the gas leak himself, but found none. Urban's neighbor reported that their daughter had a coughing fit in the middle of the night. When the neighbor checked on their daughter, they found that she was briefly paralyzed. The next night, on September 1st, a woman named Mrs. Kearney noticed a sickly sweet odor in her home. The smell became stronger. Her legs began to feel weak. Her lips started to burn, and her throat started to tighten. Mrs. Kearney became distraught and called out for her sister, who came into the room and also noticed the smell. The police were contacted shortly after. When her husband, Bert Kearney, arrived home from work, he saw someone staring through their window. It was a man wearing dark clothing and a tight-fitting cap. Local newspapers began to often misreport and exaggerate articles in order to generate more sales. This played into the public's growing panic. Listeners who might recall the Henry McCabe case will know that this kind of reporting is happening to this day. Whatever the case, the panic surrounding the story of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon became so far-reaching that the FBI became involved. This marks the point where the newspapers did so much to distort the facts surrounding the Mad Gasser of Mattoon that it's not worth reporting most of the attacks after. But there is one last attack worth mentioning that happened on September 5th, 1994. Carly and Beulah Cords, who lived on North 21st Street, arrived home one evening. Unlike a lot of previous attacks, they didn't arrive to an overwhelmingly gassed home. Instead, the Cords found a large white cloth on their porch. After Beulah picked up the cloth, she smelled it, and the effects were immediate. So strong was the sensation that she felt like she had been jolted with electricity. Beulah's face swelled up, and her eyes, mouth, and throat began to burn. She began to vomit profusely. After she finished vomiting, she tried to stand, but her legs were paralyzed. Found on the sidewalk was a skeleton key and an empty tube of lipstick. Remember when I told you to remember that man and the woman prowling in their 1933 Chevrolet? The lipstick seems like an interesting piece of evidence to me. The reason being that, at the time, the anesthetic prowler 
wasn't linked to the Mad Gas or Mattoon. This is one of the reasons I think that the September 5th attack is worth noting. It ties everything together. It could strengthen a few theories. One, about a book that was published. I'll get to that one later. And two, about the potential of two gassers. Again, I'll follow up on that in a second. Unfortunately, while I think there were other potential attacks, I think they are lost in the jumbled mess of awful reporting. The news media at the time really did a number on the stories. The exaggerations got more and more extreme. Some of the illustrations are interesting, though, and I'll post a few of them on my website. I thought about reading some of the stories, but I think a lot of them are just jumping the shark. They'd make for an interesting movie, though. Fictional, that is. In 2003, Scott Maruna published a book called The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria. I think it's worth mentioning. In the book, he claims that Farley Llewellyn, who apparently had been suffering from mental health issues, was the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. I'm not sure how much credence I'd give the book, as an apparent sticking point is that Llewellyn was a gay crossdresser. I'm not sure how much that has to do with being the Mad Gasser. I guess there's the tentative example of the lipstick, but I'm not sure what that has to do with the motive. Do I think that the Mad Gasser Mattoon was real, not just an urban legend, not just mass hysteria? To be honest, maybe. I even lean towards yes. I think there being separate, unrelated, but extremely similar incidents is too coincidental. I'm not ruling out the possibility of mass hysteria, but it's not what I lean towards. Theory I have is that there were two attackers, one man, one woman. I think that one of them knew their way around gas. Newspapers theorize that the gasser could have been a dentist or a doctor. If so, I'm not sure they did it for the money, but for the thrill. I wouldn't be surprised that at one point, they spent a few years in Florida, but for whatever reason, it seemed that Floridians didn't seem easy to panic. You think it'd be easier to find more information on the Lake City attacks, but it seems like they mostly laughed it off. If Florida was on the low end of panic, and Virginia was in the middle, Illinois got whipped up into an absolute frenzy. It seemed that in previous incidents, when the heat was on, the gasser, or gassers, waited for it to cool off. If they were real, and not just an urban legend, I can imagine that the newspaper-driven hysteria might have been enough to get the pair to call it quits. And the lack of attention in Florida might have been enough for them to move on. A few counterpoints. In my research, I found that some believe that gassing hysteria was common at the time. I don't think that's out of the question, as gas leaks are pretty terrifying on their own. Something else that's worth mentioning... Natural gas didn't have an odor until after a 1937 tragedy that happened in Texas. A newly built school at the time was built with a heating system that used natural gas. On March 18, 1937, at 3.17 p.m., a machine shop teacher turned on a piece of electrical equipment that sparked, and the resulting explosion literally blew the roof off the building. When the roof came down, the entire front half of the school was crushed, Nearly 300 students died, most of them instantly. Hundreds of survivors were pulled from the rubble. And that brings to the question, why the mad gas or Mattoon's gas had a smell? If you do recall, it had been described as artificial. So, 
I don't think the lack of smell and natural gas at the time disproves his existence. I want to leave this one to the listeners. Do you think that the mad gasser was real? Do you think it was a case of mass hysteria? Or do you have another theory? I'm genuinely interested. If you have a theory, consider reaching out on social media. What's interesting is that this isn't the only sleeper-related figure from that period. Part 3. The Phantom Barber of Pascagoula We've covered using sleep as a tool, but what about taking advantage of someone sleeping? Getting into bed at night should be a time of rest. It's when we're at our most vulnerable. Unfortunately, for the following victims, they all had a rude awakening. June 5th, 1942, Pascagoula, Mississippi. Two young girls, Mary Evelyn Briggs and Edna Marie Heidel, are sleeping at the convent of Our Lady of Victories. They wake to find a man climbing out of their bedroom window. The girls were not harmed, but both were missing locks of their hair. One of the girls described the man as short, overweight, and wearing a white sweatshirt. The culprit would go on to be known as the Phantom Barber of Pascagoula. Three days later, the Phantom Barber commits another attack. He slit the window screen of the home of David G. Petey and took a lock of his daughter Carol's hair. The barber left a footprint near the window. Four days later, the Phantom Barber struck again. This time, targeting the home of Mr. and Mrs. Heidelberg. Like previous incidents, the window screen had been slit. This time, however, he wasn't interested in hair. He opted instead to grab an iron bar and viciously attack the couple. Mr. Heidelberg was knocked unconscious, and he knocked out two of Mrs. Heidelberg's front teeth. Since they were attacked in their sleep, they couldn't give a description of their assailant. It helps to know that at the time, the entire city of Pascagoula was in a state of panic. It was to a point that the hysteria was even affecting the local economy. Local night shift jobs couldn't be filled because men would stay home to be with their family instead. One woman, named Sander Moncrief, who was a child in 1942, remembers her father and mother taking shifts at night with an iron billy stick. Fed up with the attacks, six men were deputized by the police. A search began, and bloodhounds were used. Bloodstained gloves were found in the woods near the house. By August, the police arrested a 57-year-old German man named William Dolan. It was believed that the man had motive to attack the Heidelbergs. Mr. Heidelberg's father was a judge who wouldn't lower Dolan's bail for a trespassing charge. A bundle of hair was found at his residence. Dolan was found guilty of attempted murder. He was sentenced to 10 years. But then, things get interesting. Mississippi governor named Fielding Wright becomes suspicious of the case. After reviewing it, he asked if Dolan would like to take a lie detector test. Dolan passed the test and is released after serving six years. It's worth noting that lie detector tests are notoriously unpredictable. In this case, though, I do find the bag of hair to be convenient and seems like a great way to pin the blame on someone. The police had on their hands a city stirred into a frenzy that was hurting the local economy. 
It's possible, even likely, that Dolan was used as their fall guy, that things were getting too hot, and he was used to cool things down. Dolan was known to have German sympathies, which wasn't considered acceptable during World War II. The locals were more than happy to accept him as the Phantom Barber. If it's true, what does that mean as far as the real Phantom Barber goes? Was he also a bout of mass hysteria that was cut off before it got taken too far? Was he a real, terrifying person that got away with his acts? Crawling in children's windows? Cutting their hair? Smashing the faces of others with a steel pipe? Or was William Dolan really the Phantom Barber and was exonerated from the use of an unreliable lie detector? Personally, I don't think we'll ever know. Part 4. The Sleep Intruder For the final part of this episode, I'd like to touch on an interesting, if somewhat unnerving, sleep-related post I found on Reddit. On January 2nd, 2014, a Reddit user by the name of RedOnceBlue80 posts a thread to a ghost subreddit. Now, before you get worried, we're not jumping the shark here. There is more to this story than ghosts. The user in question is distressed about an audio recording she made. There's something sincere about this user compared to other posters on the subreddit, and web sleuths have been somewhat baffled by the mystery surrounding the recording. The original post reads, I use an app called Sleep as Android to improve my sleep. One of the features is that it records your nighttime noises. Snoring, sleep talk, cover ruffles, coughing, etc., I've been using the app since October 1st of 2013, and I've never caught anything other than the sounds created by me changing positions or coughing or something like that, although I've been told several times I talk in my sleep by other people. On 12.30 at 2.04 a.m., I caught something very weird. The night I was sleeping in my bed, my three-year-old was with me that night as he is scared of the dark. It was just the two of us in the whole house. The next night, I decided to go through and delete my recordings and saw this particular record. In it, you can hear some clicks that start to get louder over the course of the recording. Eventually, you can hear me say, What are you doing? And immediately after, there is a deep voice that says, Nothing. The clicks become very loud at that point, and at the very end of the recording, you hear the same voice say, That's them. I am pretty creeped out by this. I don't remember being awake that night. The only plausible explanation is that I answered my own sleep talking, but the voice doesn't even sound like me, or something I would emulate. It definitely doesn't sound like a voice my preschooler could emulate, either. I have no idea what the clicks could be. I keep a fan going at night, for white noise, but the clicks sound like they're coming from right near my phone, which is placed right by me on my bedside table. I want to say that I've picked up the clicks a few times on recording before, but deleted them thinking it was nothing. This is the first time I've ever heard anything, though. She then links the audio, and continues with, I would love some debunking here. I like creepy stuff, but certainly not in my own home. The audio I'm about to play is at a higher than usual volume, so you can make out all the various sounds. If you're sensitive to high volume, or you're in a situation where you don't want to hear high volume, consider turning it down just a little bit. And here is the original audio. 
Here is a cleaned up, enhanced version. From what I can make out, I can hear, what are you doing? by the woman and poster of the thread, followed quickly by, it's them, or it's jammed, by what sounds like a male. There are the clicks as well, and I find it distressing that she deleted the clicks in the past. It seems to suggest the possibility that something else was going on in her room in the past, and she didn't think it was anything because there wasn't a voice. I don't know about you guys, but that might be enough for me to move on from my home. An audio spectrogram was analyzed by web sleuths, and it was found that the woman is not speaking to herself. The picture of the second individual in the room is significantly lower than the thread poster. Some believe that if the male voice in the recording is saying, it's jammed, the whole thing can be explained away as an intruder rummaging through her dresser. This can also explain the clicking noises and the sliding sound heard shortly before the male speaks up. Those that side with the ghost theory believe that the male's voice is very low, much lower than your average male at least. I'd like to point out that there is a lot of clipping in the audio. This could also cause some issues with the recording and explain why his voice is so low, maybe even add the clicking noises. In an edit on the original thread, user RedOnceBlue80 provides an update. I've caught no more voice recordings since then. Also, as suggested by several people, I've beefed up my home security, change locks, that kind of thing. This happened four months ago. Since then, I've had no more weird voice recordings. But there were two more instances of clicking noises waking me up at night. During one of the times that I woke up, I sat up and I tried to hear where the sound was coming from, even though I was pretty scared. The sound seemed to be coming from an area of my fan, about 12 feet away from my bed. But the closer I got, it started to fade away. When I got to my fan, it wasn't coming from my fan at all, that I can tell, and it just stopped. Very weird. Also, I took someone else's advice and walked through my house shortly after the final clicking, asked that whatever it was to please leave my house, and that my son and I were scared. I felt like a complete ding-dong doing that, though. But I was up for trying anything. I'd say nothing weird has happened for about three months now. I'm completely fine with that. This experience really messed with me for a while. Obviously, nothing in her story is substantiated, but there is something about the story that rings genuine to me. Nothing in the story or about the original poster sets off my BS detector. I'm not seeing your usual red flags for this kind of story. I personally don't believe in the supernatural, though I don't judge those that do. And I'll admit, you can't fully disprove anything like that. The original poster doesn't really seem to have any motive to sell books, and she admitted to feeling foolish when she followed another user's advice. It's that mixture of openness and willing to figure things out that makes this whole thing feel somewhat authentic to me. Going off the idea that we are given the full story on this, 
I have two theories. Theory number one. The voice in the audio is her son groggily communicating with his mom. I think there is a chance we are dealing with audio distortion due to poor recording and audio clipping. The clicking noise can potentially be explained by an anti-snoring feature in the app. Another explanation is that the clicking noise could be a water bottle in her bed. I know I sleep with one for if I get thirsty in the night. Theory number two, there was an intruder. We're all true crime fans, right? We know this kind of thing isn't out of the question. The serial killer Richard Chase famously would try front doors to see if they were locked. If he found one that was unlocked, he took it as an invitation. The person in the audio clip sounds strangely distant when they talk. They could have been disturbed or just fearless in committing crime. I find this theory terrifying. The idea of someone casually rummaging through my stuff and having an audio recording of myself, half dreaming, half awake, communicating, is enough to give me goose flesh. No matter what the truth is, intruder, son, ghost, hoax, there is something about the audio clip that just gets my skin crawling. And I think it might be the unknown aspect of it. So many of these online mysteries tend to stretch things beyond belief. A Twitter ghost story by comic author Adam Ellis captivated thousands, but eventually jumped the shark when a doll was introduced. He stretched the suspension of disbelief too far, in my opinion. Though, I heard he got a movie deal out of it, so what do I know? The audio app mystery carries with it a plausibility. It feels relatable. It makes me question if I'd even want to know what's going on when I sleep. What about you? Have you thought about recording while you're sleeping? What would your reaction be if you heard something like that on audio? Would you barricade your house? Would you move out? That's what the original poster from Reddit did. In an update on the original post, I won't read the update here, as I've done quite a bit of that already. The original poster admits to moving from her home. Can you blame her? Thunderstorm capable of producing a 